that you'd bless this time in the study of your word. And, and Lord, once again, as we look at the tabernacle, that we would be reminded of, of the things that, that of the tabernacle, which uh, Lord speaks of you, which uh, we can make application. And Lord, it speaks of your goodness and your faithfulness and the work that you have done, our great high priest. And so, Lord, we look forward tonight to, to hearing from you and uh, receiving from you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Again, we're in this section of, of Exodus that began in chapter 25. It was after Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he would bring them to the mountain of God. And there God showed himself to the children of Israel in that, that the mountain shook there at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and, and there the, the mountain was on fire and, and, and burned like a furnace. There was thunderings, there was lightnings, uh, the voice of God was heard, uh, there was a, the you know, sound of a trumpet that got louder, and the people trembled. And they said, Moses, you go up on the mountain, you receive the law, what God has to say to us. And of course, God would give Moses the laws. We saw the Ten Commandments there given in chapter 20, and then some of the ceremonial laws, some of the religious laws, some of the civil laws that were given to Moses that is going to run their nation and also run their spiritual life as well. So after that, we also saw that Moses being up on the mountain, that he is being shown the pattern of, to the tabernacle. The Lord came to Moses and said, Moses, I'm going to show you the pattern of the tabernacle. And that tabernacle, which would sit in the middle of the camp, the children of Israel would be in orderly ranks camped in a certain fashion on the east and, and um, on the south and west and north sides. Uh, and then in the middle would be the tabernacle where Moses and Aaron uh, would be. And there the tabernacle has been explained to us in details, again, that pattern that God has shown to Moses, the tabernacle itself, the furnishings of the tabernacle, the outer court, uh, the, the altar where they did the sacrifices. We've looked at all these. And in the last couple of weeks, we looked at the garments for the priests, for the high priests. And then last week in chapter 29, we saw that the priests were set aside, consecrated for service. To minister unto me is what the Lord says. And so we've looked at the responsibilities and of the priests. Their main responsibility is to represent God to the people, and, uh, and then they were to represent the people to God. And we're going to talk about how they did that here in our text tonight. And so chapter 30, we're going to see that the more tabernacle-related things are, are going to be talked about as we talk about the altar of incense here. Again, Exodus chapter 30, we read, You shall make an altar to burn incense on, and you shall make it of Achaia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its width. It shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold, and you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. And he shall make the poles of Achaia wood and overlay them with gold. And so here we see that this altar of incense is instructed and shown to Moses, this is what you are to build. It was, again, to be a cubit square, that it's about 18 inches square, and two cubic uh, high, and that's about three feet high, so it's almost like a, a, a tall, small uh, nightstand is what it was. 
but in it they would burn incense. And so um, this is not to be confused with the brazen altar that was out in the outer court. And, and I, I didn't put up the, the um, illustration that, that we had up here of the tabernacle and the furnishings uh, because of the communion table, but uh, this is going to be placed in the tabernacle, and we'll see where it's going to be placed specifically in the next verses that we read. So don't confuse it with the altar, the bronze altar that they used in doing the sacrifices that we talked about last week. You recall in, in consecrating, or that is setting aside the priest for service, they were to, to offer up a bull and two rams, and we talked about the burnt offering and also about the peace offering. We talked about the sin offering that they were to give, what it means for you and me, how it speaks to you and to me as we are called in Revelation chapter 5, a kingdom of priests. We are called by Peter in his epistle, a royal priesthood. And so there is a lot of application for us to make. But even in the furnishings, again, we can make application. And we see here that this is where that they would burn incense unto the Lord. And so it was uh, made of a system of rings and poles, just like the ark was. The, the Levites, we will see in the book of Numbers, would back in after the priests went in and covered these furnishings. Because remember, the tabernacle was not a permanent structure. It was a temporary structure that they would tear apart and they would fold up. We see in the book of Numbers, the numbers uh, in that book of the Old Testament talks about how God does things decently and in order, and all the responsibility of the Levites, the different families, had certain responsibilities in tearing down and setting up the tabernacle. And one family, we will see what they did is they backed up after the priests went in, and again, who were the priests? The priests were the direct descendants of Aaron, Aaron and his sons. And so those priests would cover it up. The Levites would go in, and then they would carry, like, the Ark of the Covenant. They would carry the, the showbread table. They would carry the, the altar out in the outer court. And this altar of incense, where they would burn incense by a series of poles. Those poles that would go through the rings, they were overlaid with gold. And so uh, this is the altar of incense. And where does it sit in the tabernacle? Well, verse 6. And you should put it before the veil, that is, before the Ark of Testimony, before the mercy seat, that is, over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamp, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, or perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And then verse 10, And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. And so it was placed before that veil. Remember the tabernacle itself divided into two rooms. You would walk into the tabernacle, right hand side, the showbread uh, table with the 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel, also speaking of how Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Left hand side, seven branch golden menorah, which speaks of that Israel was to be a light to the other nations, but also speaks about how Jesus is the light of the world. The altar of incense would be straight ahead right before that veil, as we saw the details of that veil would be woven uh, artistically in the linen, the woven linen there that, that was the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the cherubim. And there would be that little stand, only 18 inches by 18 inches, three feet high, the altar of incense. And so it was there, and that altar of incense as the priest would go in, just as 
as Aaron is told here in Moses, that the priests were to go in when they are tending the seven-branch menorah. That is, they would trim the wicks, make sure the bowls were full of oil, they would light it at twilight, make sure that it was burning in the tabernacle, but also your duties are to make sure that in the morning and in the evenings that you are burning incense. And as I said, the responsibility of the priests were to represent God to the people but also to represent the people before God. They did that by the sacrifices. They would do that also by burning incense to the Lord. That represented the prayers of the people. And so you and I, how can we, you know, how can we be ones that we present the people to God? We do it by intercessory prayer, don't we? We lift people up to the Lord. We lift each other up to the Lord. We who have needs, and that's why it's so important that we individually are ones that we pray, and then corporately as a church that we're praying together as well. And notice here that they did this in the morning and they did this in the evening. So I think that as we look at this, and again, you, you can see the picture of, of incense being a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And we saw that phrase in the last chapter last week, didn't we? When they did the burnt offerings, when they did the, the, um, the peace offering, when they did the daily sin offerings, it was a sweet aroma to the Lord. In other words, it was pleasing to the Lord. It, it, it pleases the Lord when we are ones that we confess and humbly come and repent of our sin. It pleases the Lord when we offer ourselves wholly to him, as we talked about in the burnt offering. A whole animal would be consumed. And in that, what the priests were saying as they put their hands on that animal that would be consumed is that transference, that whole idea and, and that theological concept of transference that I am saying that I'm giving all of my life to you as that animal would be consumed. And we as a living sacrifice say the same thing to the Lord. I give you all of my life, Lord, all of my heart, all of my devotion goes to you. And in our devotion, a big part of that is prayer. And it's important for you and me that, that we be ones, that, that we get into that routine of a daily devotion, that we're coming to the Lord in the mornings and, and giving our hearts to him in prayer, coming to him and, and giving him our needs and, and asking for supplication. And, and, you know, the scripture says to cast your cares upon him for he cares for us, to, to ask for guidance. Lord, I'm starting my day. And then also a good practice is to do it in the evening as you end your day as well at twilight. Just as the, the sin offering was done in the mornings and in the evenings, the, the, the wicks were taken care of in the mornings and evenings, the menorah, same with the incense being burnt. And so I think it's a good, good practice and a good pattern for us that we start the day with the Lord, we end the day with the Lord. Lord, thank you for getting me through another day. Thank you for guiding and for providing for me. And, and Lord, um, see you in the morning. And, um, and so I think it's a good pattern for us to look at. Revelation chapter 5, we see in that heavenly scene that the golden bowls were being present, presented, and they were golden bowls of incense, which are, we are told, the prayers of the people. It would be David that would write in Psalm 141, let my prayer be before you as incense. And so again, that whole picture of that incense rising, being a sweet smell and aroma to the Lord, and, and uh, being pleasing to the Lord. 
And so no strange incense was to be offered and burned, no other offering at this time. But it was once a year on the Day of Atonement here that we read that Aaron and the high priest was to make atonement by sprinkling the bull and goat's blood on the altar's horn. And, and we read about that, again, as we go into Leviticus chapter 16. It talks about the Day of Atonement. But the thing is, you and I, and, and that altar of incense right there before the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would go in, and there he would be before the tangible presence of God. That's where the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, that's where I'm going to meet with you. There, uh, between the cherubim, the mercy seat, they would go in once a year and make atonement for the nation and sprinkle the blood on that. And the closest thing to that was the prayers. And you and I, we have the marvelous privilege, don't we, an opportunity because of the blood of Jesus Christ, atonement being made, for you and me, that we can now come to the throne room of God. Now we can have relationship. We can pray to him. And I think that if we just stop and think about that, because I think all of us know, don't we, that prayer is to be a very important part of our Christian lives. And, and I'll speak for myself, but probably a lot of you feel the same way. I know that, that you know, I can get a little, um, get, you know, distracted from praying, um, that, you know, I really have to labor at it and work at it. And it isn't that God's going to love me more if I don't pray or I miss a morning devotion or anything like that. But I know that there's power in prayer. And I know it's the vehicle in which God works. And it pleases Him. And, and it stirs my heart when I come to Him. And, and, and it's a marvelous privilege that I have because of what Jesus Christ you know, did that I can come and I can cast my cares upon the Lord. I can intercede. I can, I can pray for you. I can pray for the families. I, I look at the prayer chain that we have here at Calvary Chapel. So many prayer requests come through the prayer chain. And, and I hope that those of you who are on it, and I know that many of you are, that you're praying for those people. You're, you're praying for the needs. You're praying for those who are sick. That we as a church here, uh, that we are a church that prays. And I think that's one of the things that the church at large it can really be weak in, and that is that the people of God really committed to prayer. And, and I hope that we would be known as one, that this is a church that prays. And we see the pattern of the early church, that they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that is the teaching of the word, in fellowship and breaking of bread, and what? In prayer. They, the early church, as you read the book of Acts, Prayer was very much an important part of the believers' lives and of the church corporately, and there was power in the church. And so if we don't make prayer a priority here at Calvary Chapel, along with the teaching of the Word of God, then we miss out. And, and, and the Lord, again, prayer is the vehicle in which God works. And so this altar of incense representing the prayers of the people, how prayer is so important in our own lives. One of the things that's interesting about this altar of incense that happened in the Old Testament, a story that I think is worth mentioning, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah was the king of Judah. He was the king of Judah for over 50 years, and he was a good king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And during the reign of Uzziah, he, he was a very popular king. He was a king that was very successful, that is. He defeated the enemies around him. He was one that was very capable, very intelligent. He was one 
that was very talented. He was one that the scriptures tell us in Second Chronicles chapter 26 that he was an inventor of weaponry um, that would give Judah victory over her enemies. He was a great economist. He brought the nation, Judah, into a season of prosperity. And so the people really loved Uzziah. And so it would, after that, that Isaiah would be called to ministry. After that is the year that King Uzziah died, that I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and a glory filled the temple, the train of his glory. And, and so we read about that's where Isaiah was called to ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. And so people, they, they were wondering what's going to happen to us now that Uzziah has died. He's reigned for so many years. But it would be after that that the nation would plunge deep into idol worship once again. And we see that it would be Isaiah and the other prophets that came along and began to speak to the nation of Judah about turning back to the Lord. But during Uzziah's reign, even though he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, he was a very capable king, at the end of his life he became very prideful. And what he did was he went into the temple, that is Solomon's temple, and he went to that altar of incense, and he began to burn incense. And it tells us there that 80 priests came and confronted him and said, Uzziah, you may be the king, but you're not supposed to do this. Only the priests are allowed to come in and burn incense here. And Uzziah's answer pretty much to those 80 priests was, bug off, I'll do whatever it is that I want. And as he was doing that, leprosy struck his head. And so they isolated him, and that's how he died. His last days he died, and he died in a very tragic way, of leprosy in isolation because it was full of uh, pride and full of arrogance. One of the things to remember, one of the principles about when we pray, you don't come with, with pride, you don't come with arrogance. You don't come trying to manipulate God and, and I'm going to treat God as a celestial Santa Claus or someone to be manipulated. We come humbly before the Lord. Remember who he is and remember that prayer is really to get our hearts in line with the Lord's heart, isn't it? And we can let our requests be known to God. And, and we can give him our desires. And, and we can give him, you know, the things that, that we're praying about. He wants to hear from that. But then humbly, Lord, whatever you think is best for me, Lord, whatever you want to do, however you want to bless me, I trust in you, Lord. We come humbly before him. We don't come with pride or arrogance or, or manipulating God or, you know, God, you're to serve me. We're the servant, he's the master, and we are to come with a humble attitude, with an attitude of reverence to the Lord. And you see, Uzziah didn't do that. And it ended up, it ate him away, the leprosy. And so I pray that we would come, again, seeing that the Lord delights when we come to him. He wants to spend time with you and me. Prayer is a big part of that but we come humbly before the Lord as well. And then in verse 11, the ransom money, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, then you shall take the census of the children of Israel for their number. Then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, and there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras, and half a shekel should be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included from those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more than the poor, shall not give less than half a shekel. And when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. In verse 16, and you shall take this atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for service of the tabernacle, meaning that may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for 
for yourselves. And so here um, we see that when you take a census, Moses, and we know that Moses took a census when they first came out of Egypt, and we saw that census in the book of Numbers. It's recorded that census to us in details. And so counting the males, 20 years and older, and in that count we can get an idea about how many were in the nation, how many women, how many children. A conservative estimate is 2 million people in this nation, probably closer to two and a half. 3 million people because remember that when Pharaoh had made that decree to have the, the children drown, the male children drown in the Nile River, it was because they were multiplying exceedingly, increasing greatly. It was a ex population explosion that was going on before they would leave Egypt. But then that generation would die out in the wilderness, wouldn't they? And so it would take another census at the end of the wilderness wandering. And again, we see the same numbers about two, two and a half million people are probably in the nation. Now here's the interesting thing. When you take a census, um, Moses, you are to have them pay half a shekel. It was like paying a tax. All the people paid the same amount. It was a flat tax, if you want to call it that, to help maintain the tabernacle and its service. So the tax was considered a ransom, and a payment would mean protection from plague. Isn't that interesting? It was also considered an atonement. So you only take a census and that of things that belong to you. In other words, we can take a census of how many chairs that we own in, in the church because we own the chairs. Uh, we can take a, a census of our own finances at home because those are our finances. So a census here, as it signifies ownership, you only take a census or number what belongs to you so this speaks here of God's ownership to Israel now does this remind you of something it does with me and it answers some questions for me because in 2nd Samuel chapter 24 David at the end of his life you recall that David took a census didn't he he calls Joab, the commander of his army, and he says, Joab, I want to number the soldiers. I want to number the men that I have available for battle, all the way from Dan in the north part of the country to Beersheba down in the south. Number them all. And remember Joab, he said, you sure you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? And David said, yes, I want to do that. So he does it. He realizes his sin, and the Lord causes a plague that would go throughout Israel. And you see, David didn't do what God had instructed him to do. David should have known God's word. David, who was dedicated to the word of God, that there was no ransom, there was no, no tax that was given, no, no tax for that atonement that was given. So that's part of the answer why David sinned. And part of the answer also is, is that David was looking that I'll number the people because I'm going to trust in the strength of how many soldiers I have to fight for me rather than trusting in the strength of the Lord. You see, I think there's a real balance in that. And in here, the God didn't say you cannot take a census, but when I tell you to take a census, here's a ransom. Here's atonement that's be made, Moses. David should have known that. David, whenever you see that, that something like that happened, you recall that it was in 2 Samuel chapter 6, that David's bringing the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. He has it on a cart. And then Uzzah, as Anak stumbles and the Ark of the Covenant is about ready to fall off, he reaches up and he, he stabilizes the Ark of the Covenant and God strikes him dead. And David couldn't understand, why are you doing that, Lord? And he was angry at the Lord. But then he repented and he had fear because he realized he was doing it wrong. 
He's doing it the Philistine way rather than God's way that said, no, the Levites are to bear it on their shoulders. And so he would then bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem at that time. Well, with this this census he took, he was trusting in the strength of numbers rather than in the Lord. That's one of the reasons, and again, why I say there's a balance in in those things, is I never want to get into, you know, people ask, well, how many people do you have? Pastors really like to play that game when we get together, and they sound real spiritual at it. You go to a pastor's conference or you meet with other pastors, well, how many people are you seeing? And I always frustrate them because I say, I don't know. I don't know. Well, about how many? Oh, 100 to 500, who knows? And, and, and I, I do that for a reason, because the thing is, I do know about how many people come here to Calvary Chapel. And Jesus, when he was talking about sheep, he says, you know, it's the shepherd that knows the 99, and, but knows the one that leaves and goes out and after him. So the shepherd is going to know about the sheep, but also I never want to get to the point where we're trusting in numbers rather than trusting the Lord, where we see numbers as being our strength. And unfortunately, in a church today, in the mentality of what is success and all that, it's in numbers oftentimes. Numbers and how much money they bring in, numbers of how big their facility is, number how many people that they have that they're ministering to. That doesn't automatically mean success. But our priority, what we need to keep in mind is that our strength is in the Lord. And as we are doing what the Lord tells us to do and honoring him and in the word and the people that pray and love one another, then that's success. Whether it's 10 people or 100 people, whether it's 500 people, whether it's 1,000 people, whether it's 2,000 people, our strength is in the Lord, not just in numbers, not just in budgets, not just in buildings, but the Lord himself. So we see here this, this ransom number <coughs> that is given here to the people. And, and one of the things that, um, the, to remember in this is that Jesus paid the ransom for you and me by his blood, and we belong to him. A side note is that this practice later would become the basis for the temple tax. We see it, for example, in Nehemiah chapter 10 after the captivity, and they rebuilt Solomon's, well, Solomon's temple had been destroyed. They rebuilt the temple, the second temple. We see it, and we're going to see it in Matthew chapter 17 when we get there and not too long from now on Sunday morning. You recall that it was the Pharisees that came to Simon Peter and said, how come your master doesn't pay the temple tax? And so Jesus said to Simon that, you know, go out to the Sea of Galilee and throw out a hook. You're going to catch a fish and open its mouth, and there's going to be that money there that you can pay the temple tax. So there's some very important lessons in that when we get there to Matthew chapter 17, and that is when you go fishing, take Jesus with you. So, (laughs) no, seriously, there are more important lessons than that. But you see that they paid that temple tax, and it would help in in helping in maintaining the temple, which would be a magnificent structure there in Jesus' time, and uh, also for the maintenance and, and all the ministry that took place there. In verse 17, then the Lord said to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, and a space also of bronze for washing. And you shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet and water from it. And when they go into the tabernacle meeting, and when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them to hide 
to him and his descendants throughout their generations. And so here, the last of the tabernacle furnishings that we look at, the bronze laver that, um, that uh, when ministering in the tabernacle or at the altar, the priests were required to wash. And it was out in the outer courtyard. Again, you would come into the courtyard. There would be the altar where they did the sacrifices. And then this, this labor that they, the priest would do the washing. It was made of bronze. And we also know um, that the women would give their mirrors. And it's not a mirror like we think of, but very shiny metal that they would give that the priest could see their reflections there and wash the dirt off and they would do that washing now we talked about this a little bit last week when the priests were required when they're being consecrated that first of all they they were to wash and so we're reminded again that we are washed with the blood of jesus christ second of all titus chapter 3 verse 5 tells us that we are washed with regeneration by the holy spirit that is he's given us a new heart he dwells in our hearts regeneration has happened uh, a regenerated heart all things have become new we walk in the newness of life but then thirdly we are washed with what ephesians chapter 5 the water of the word so that's you and i how we can make application washed by the blood of jesus christ first of all our sins are forgiven we are a new creature in christ as the holy spirit comes into us lives in our hearts and then thirdly we wash ourselves with the water of the word constantly as you know i don't know about you but at the end of the day i feel yuck and the things of the world all around us and what we hear and the news and everything else and it's so wonderful in your twilight devotion just as we've seen the priests that ministered and gave incense and, and the sin offering and all of this and ministered at the lamps, that when you have your devotion to the Lord, that you're able to just read the word. And again, there's a cleansing that takes place uh, in our souls and in our hearts every time that we do that, the washing of the word. And then we read in verse 22, the holy anointing oil. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil. And he shall make from these holy anointing oil, anointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. Verse 26, with it you shall anoint the tabernacle meaning and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings with all, you, all its utensils and the labor in its base. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. Verse 30, and you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. Verse 32, it shall not be poured on a man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from its people. So this holy anointing oil would be used to anoint the priest, the tabernacles, the furnishings, the utensils in Aaron. And we see here that when you make this holy anointing oil, here is the, the way that you are to make it. We're going to see the incense um, as well that they are to make. You're not to make a, a copy of it. Don't try to make a duplicate of it. But this is holy anointing oil, very special. This is the way that you are to make it. There's a very important lesson in this, and I know it's a lesson that I've had to learn in years of ministry. 
the holy anointing oil. Aaron and his sons are going to be anointed with oil. And we've talked about how oil in the Old Testament speaks of the Holy Spirit. And any of us that minister in any capacity, as we've talked about, the priests that would wear those garments that covered up with their nakedness, we never do ministry out of the flesh. We always do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, don't we? And whatever it is that you do, whether you're ministering to your kids or ministering outside these four walls, whether you're teaching a Sunday school class or working in a nursery, whether you're leading a home fellowship, whether you're teaching Bible or being a pastor such as me, it has to be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't want to do ministry out of fleshly kinds of, of ways and activity and efforts. But Lord, you anoint me by the Holy Spirit. But here I learned something, that you're not to duplicate that oil. You know, sometimes, oftentimes, that we can look at people, and maybe I'm just speaking to myself, and it's a lesson, and being a pastor. When I first started teaching the Bible, that was a very intimidating thing, very intimidating thing. And I think that all of us, that we have people that we look to as examples in ministry, and I know that I did, Pastor Chuck Smith, my pastor, and Pastor Chuck, as I've seen for over 50 years, faithfully ministering, really being an example of what a servant is, having a servant's heart, being faithful in teaching the Word of God and being faithful to sticking with teaching the Word of God, his people and how God has blessed his ministry and what he has done for the Lord, his humble heart before the Lord. I've learned so much from that man. It reminds me of what Paul said to the Corinthian church when he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I look at my pastor, Pastor Chuck, and, and, and just his teaching of the Word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I don't know how many times he's taken his congregation, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, through the Scriptures. I believe it's about a dozen times. And so as he's been faithful in doing that and listening to his tapes and, and then other guys as John Corson and, and Skip Heisick and Mike McIntosh and these guys so anointed of the Lord, what can happen is, is when you begin to teach the Bible, you can say, I want to sound like them, I want to be like them, I want to teach like them. I want to duplicate them. And I've seen young guys in the ministry that have done that. And the thing is, we can learn from them. Certainly we can. And we can look at the person who's the example. We can see their teaching. We can, we can learn from them. I hope you learn from me. But the thing is that I've learned through the years of ministry, I don't have to be a Chuck Smith. God, there's only one Chuck Smith. And I don't have to be a Skip Heisick. I don't have to be a Mike McIntosh. I can be me. And certainly I will learn from them, and I will keep looking to them and, and just being thankful for those men. But I can be me. And the Lord has anointed me, so I don't have to try to duplicate anyone. And it's the same with you. You can look at somebody's ministry and say, oh, man, I want to be like them. And, and so we want to duplicate them. But the Lord has something special for you to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you're anointed. And there's only one Holy Spirit. There's only one holy anointing oil. And allow the Lord to anoint you and where he's called you and where he's placed you and the gifts he's given to you and the abilities you have. And he, he, you know, you have, we all have our own personalities. Wouldn't it all be boring if we were just all exactly the same and did everything the same? Of course it would. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about the body of Christ and about this fellowship. We all have different personalities and, and we all have different backgrounds, but the Lord has brought us together as a family, hasn't he? 
And he's gifted you and called you to minister in different ways. And, and it's wonderful to see that and how you're exercising your gifts and see how God is using you and, and how we're growing together in the Lord by the Holy Spirit teaching us and dwelling in our hearts. And, and so it's a wonderful thing. So individually, we don't have to think we have to duplicate, but also corporately, we don't have to as well. I don't have to say, ah, oh, I want to be like that ministry and that ministry and do what they're doing. Again, we can appreciate what they're doing. We can learn. We can see a pattern that, that man, that's something. That maybe the Lord would have us do something similar. But one of the things when we came, Sue and I, we felt the calling of God to come to Greeley to, to start Calvary Chapel, it wasn't because we thought Greeley needed another church. Greeley has lots of churches, and, and, and there are a number of churches. Matter of fact, the latest study is, is that, that Greeley has more churches per capita than Fort Collins, Denver, and Colorado Springs, which was an amazing statistic when I read that. Because Colorado Springs, there's a church on every corner in Colorado Springs. That's where all the, you know, parachurch organizations and ministries focus on the family and navigators and young life and, and, and compassion. All of them have their headquarters. And there's lots of churches and big churches. But here in Greeley, there's actually more churches per capita per people. So there's a lot of churches and, and a lot of people ministering. And there's a lot of people to minister to, isn't there? Because on Sunday mornings, I've never yet hit a traffic jam. And I don't think you have either. <laughs> but the thing is, is I don't have to, when we came here, the one thing that the Lord put on my heart is that I want you to teach the Bible. And I want you to teach through the Bible, not just from the Bible. And I think that was a unique ministry that he's given and, and, and vision that he's given Calvary Chapel and being a part of this community. Not that we're better than anybody else. Not that God loves us more. But I want to minister to people who desire to come and want to go through the scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And so after 11 years, we've gone through all 66 books of the Bible. And I believe that there is a difference in teaching through the Bible, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, than teaching from the Bible. Because as you teach through the Bible, you're getting a whole counsel of God's word. And I think that's important for you to get. But I didn't come along and try to duplicate, well, let's duplicate this. And, you know, there's a lot of churches that are casual, have a coffee shop, and all those things. Nothing wrong with those things. But God has called me specifically to, to keep the main thing, the main thing, that is teaching the word of God chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And, and for people to love on each other. And for you to grow in God's word. For us to be a church that prays. To keep those basic things. And, and, and for you to be grounded in God's word. We're going to talk about that on Sunday in the parables of the mustard seed and, and the leaven. And the parable of the wheat and the tares. That there is deception in the church. And we need to be ones that we're grounded in God's word way. And plus as we talked about it's also the way to be established. You guys know that. To be strong in the Lord to be wise in the Lord, and, and to be discerning in the things that we see come blowing into the church that can be so deceptive and distracting to, to the Christians. And so it's freeing to, to, to know that, that this is what God has called us to do, and, and this is what God's called me to do, and I don't have to try to be a copycat. So I hope that might be a blessing to some of you as we ponder those things. And then as we finish the chapter, the incense, and the Lord spoke to Moses, take sweet spices, uh, stacky, uh, which, which is a plant in the Middle East, um, and then anica, and then galbanum, 
and pure Frankenstein, just seeing if you're with me, pure frankincense, and with this sweet, there's a little delay, so I don't know if you're with me. We're going to finish here in just a little bit. And these sweet spices, there shall be equal amounts of each. And it shall make of these incense a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And he shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of many, where I will meet with you, and it shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves. According to his composition, it shall be to you holy for the Lord. And whoever makes any like it, to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. So again, this incense, you shall make it. Don't duplicate it. The incense being the prayers of the people. Don't make anything copy of it. Now, sometimes people will ask you and me, or they'll say something like, I pray to God. Are you a Christian? No, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. I haven't received him as Lord and Savior, but I talk to God. It's another incense. There's one access to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. Relationship with him, fellowship with him, intimacy with him. And so we have that privilege of the incense, the sweet smell and aroma to God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And through Jesus Christ, we have a relationship. And as Hebrews 10 then says, we can come boldly into the throne room of grace. And we can fellowship with him and pray to him and talk with the Lord. And then chapter 31, just very quickly, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have been called by name uh, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur in the tribe of Judah. For I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship, and design artistic works to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for setting and carving wood and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I indeed have appointed with him uh, Ahoyahab, the son of Ahisamach, and the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of the gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you. And so here, in the making of the tabernacle, God's calling these men, first of all, to ministry, that you're going to make the, the tabernacle and the furnishings that are going to be listed here in just a moment. And then, second of all, I'm going to gift you in what I called you to do. And remember that. God will call you to ministry, and if he calls you to ministry, then he will gift you to do ministry. So all these things that you're going to make, the tabernacle meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the labor in its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests, and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded that you they shall do. And then as we finish tonight again, the Sabbath law reiterated. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths, you shall keep it for a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it surely shall be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath. of rest holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall, surely shall be put to death. Verse 16, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generation as their perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Underline that. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end to speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God, reiterating the Sabbath day that you guys are going to work six days, the seventh day you shall rest. Again, we've talked about this as we saw the Ten Commandments, as we've seen the law of the Sabbath given to, to the children of Israel. It's a covenant between me and the children of Israel. It was not given to the church. But an important principle is this. Moses, you've got a lot of work that you need to do. I want you to keep the Sabbath. It's a sign between you and me and the children of Israel as their perpetual covenant from generation to generation. So keep the Sabbath. And the thing is, we've talked about in Matthew's Gospel, as we saw that the Pharisees came against Jesus concerning the Sabbath and the keeping of the Sabbath, as we saw that Jesus would say that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So a good principle, even though the law of the Sabbath is not given to the church, the principle is there. Paul would say one man esteems one day above another, one man esteems every day alike, you'd be convinced in your own mind. And I know that some of you have strong convictions about the Sabbath and about a Sabbath day and taking the Sabbath rest, and that's great. That's the conviction that you have given from the Lord. But I'll tell you this, a good principle for you and for me. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in ministry, isn't there? Moses, you've got a lot of work to do. But I want you to keep the Sabbath. And there's a lot of work to do in ministry. But don't forget that the Sabbath was made for man. That is, the Sabbath is beneficial and good and benefits man when he takes time to be refreshed and renewed in the world. And that's why I say it's a very good principle for us to consider and pray about. For you to think through. Because I know for me, and I know for the leadership and for you who serve, I try to be very sensitive about that. Because I could have people here seven days a week. But there are guys here and you guys that you work all week long and you're here for Sunday. And Saturday is really going to be a day that you have to be with your families and be refreshed. And so I try to be sensitive because you can work and work and work. And what can happen is you get so involved in the work that you start to be drawn away from the Lord as the church of Ephesus. I know your works. I know your works. The Lord did twice. They were a working church. But this I have against you. You've left your first love. Take that time to be refreshed and renewed in the Lord. That means for me. That means for all of us. That means for this church. That we need to take the time. That we don't always have to be just busy and full of stuff and all of this going on. But take that time to be refreshed in the Lord and renewed in the Lord. In your life personally. I think it's an important principle. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus coming and dying for us. And we thank you, Lord, for these things that we've looked at very quickly tonight. But, but Lord, we can make application. And, Lord, knowing that our prayers are pleasing to you and through instance unto you. And we thank you that we have a relationship with you and what Jesus Christ did in making atonement for us. And so we come to the communion table that you instituted the new covenant and he said this is my body which was broken for you and this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sin do this and take of these things in remembrance of me so you've given us that that it may be a memorial to you and so lord the communion table as it's open tonight lord we come